Hello, and welcome to PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado, and this is another edition of Beyond the Scope. Our host today is Dr. Kamran Mirza of Loyola University, and he'll speak with Mr. Corey Nash of University of Chicago Medicine. Mr. Nash is a pathologist assistant who's on Twitter at iPlayWithOrgans and created the hashtag GPOW for Gross Photo of the Week. They'll talk about how social media is changing pathology, his experience with training residents, and how COVID-19 has impacted autopsies. Now here's your host, Dr. Kamran Mirza. This is Pathboard, the pathology podcast. Welcome to this edition of Beyond the Scope. My name is Kamran Mirza, and today I will be talking to Corey Nash, a pathologist assistant at the University of Chicago Hospitals. Welcome to the show, Corey. Thanks. Uh, excited to be here. Now I'm really excited to talk to you too. I think let's start immediately by, uh, by talking about your Twitter handle. I am such a Twitter handle aficionado and I have, <laughs> such a, bore, I have a boring one and I, and I love yours. So how did you come up with it? Oh, you know, I have no, so it originally started when I was in PA school and like Snapchat was becoming a thing. And I made a Snapchat and it was a really boring Snapchat username. It was like grad school path A. I don't really use my Snapchat anymore, but it was grad school path A. And everybody was like, that's so unoriginal. I, have to, I feel like I would have made that one. That would have been my one. <laughs> everybody was like, this, it's not creative at all. So then when Instagram started getting really popular and people were jumping on it, I was like, well, I can't use that again. And I really have no idea where it came from. Um, probably just grad school caffeinated out of my mind and i'm like you know what let's see if i play with organs is available and sure enough nobody's as weird as i am so nobody took it so i just ran with it so for for the benefit of our listeners you know sometimes we are uh, you know we have medical students who don't know that much about how pathology and laboratory medicine world works uh, do you want to give us a few lines on what a pathologist assistant does yeah, so a pathologist assistant is where the mid-level practitioners that work under the umbrella of the pathologist. And when a specimen is received, it obviously has to be cut, dissected, and then get to the pathologist. And a lot of times the pathologists are really busy reading slides, uh, training residents. So we're kind of the middleman. We're the ones that actually prosect and look for the disease, look for the tumor, take the appropriate sections, um, describe everything, and then hand it off to the pathologist. I think that you're just being super humble, uh, you know, it's just, it's just middleman in There's the process. There's a lot process. more we do. There's a lot yeah, more yeah, yeah. I mean, There's a lot more. Of course, of course. Like, you know, I mean, but your, but your humility is, is appreciated, but you know, you're the front line, I feel like, right. You, you know, the tissue comes out and not only is it a front line in healthcare, obviously by looking at, you know, the tissue that is coming from humans. So tell me how the fabric of your job has changed because now you have trainee residents in the mix. Yeah. So the one thing I always make sure to say, and the one thing I think people tend to forget is that residents are still learning. They're still training. Like they don't come in and know how to gross. They have a very basic understanding of pathology, but that's really about it. So I try to keep that in mind as I'm training them. Like I'm not expecting them to even know how to put on a scalpel blade. Like we need to be able to take that initiative and show them like, here's the proper way of even just putting on and taking off a scalpel blade. So as long as you kind of keep that in your mind, like these are trainees and if you have to explain it to them five times, then you have to explain it to them five times. If they can pick it up like that, great. But even something as simple as like biopsies, they probably never had to gross biopsies. If anything, during their med student or when they were in med school, they were under the microscope learning some things under the microscope, but they very rarely are in the actual gross room getting to see what it is that we do. So if you throw a Whipple at a first year student, 
a right. uh, first year resident, they're not going to have any idea of like the anatomy and all the margins. Like it's going to be completely confusing. Or, so, or a larynx, for example, that really a larynx. Yeah. yeah, something that's got a lot of like a lot of anatomy in a very, very small area. Right. And so you have to really know your anatomy. You have to really know how the tumor is going to present and all this. They don't know those kind of things. And I mean, I've learned over time, like even when I was doing my clinicals in, in grad school, I had residents, but I wasn't really hands on training them. So when I first started, originally I was at the University of Kansas and then I came to the University of Chicago. It was kind of a learning curve and just understanding that they don't really know what it is that they're doing when they come in. It's our job to try and train to try and train them. That's one of the things I love the most is actually just getting a chance to like sit there and teach them. And even from when I first started, you know, five years ago at working as a PA till now, the responsibilities of like a resident has changed and they are having to learn a million different, besides just grossing, a million different things with IHC and molecular. And it's the amount of information they have to know is just absolutely insane. So it's really our job to like be cognizant of that and understand like, okay, if they're having a hard time understanding that, it's not that they're not paying attention. It's just that they probably have 800 other things going on in their mind. How amazing it is to, you know, learn how to dissect a specimen or to do an autopsy. You know, it's like a very close-knit relationship. And so I think that, you know, if, if anyone was to take away anything from what the amazing things that you describe, it is that, you know, it's a fantastic partnership. I mean, it's a partnership in healthcare. Yeah, I couldn't... And it's, it's, yeah. Partnership is a great way to describe it, too, because I'm learning from them as well. Because I don't get a chance to really sit under the microscope as much, maybe for some frozens, maybe for an interesting case here and there. But it's great for me, too, because they'll tell me about a case I gross or that I help them gross and there'd be, you know, an interesting finding of like, oh, I'm not sure what that is. And then they'll come back to me and be like, oh, is this, this, this. Here I have the microscope slides. Let me show you. So it is a partnership. And so they learn from us and we learn from them. Uh, right. So tell me about kind of growing up, what your, uh, you know, influences were uh, and what led you to become a PA? Well, I mean, to even just to go back really far, just like my mother has been a nurse her entire life. She was the director of a surgery center and she basically just raised me and my brother growing up and she would raise us, go work full time and then come at home and work on getting her master's. And so seeing that growing up and seeing the dedication and how hard it is that she worked really just instilled that in me. And I was just always because of her fascinated in the medical field. And so like when I was younger, I remember having this little plastic microscope and it had some some slides, I'm, I'm sure, I don't remember, they're probably like plant material or something, I don't remember, but I was always just very fascinated with that. And so right. when it was time for me to start looking at colleges and what it is I wanted to do, my mom understood that interest in science in me and found at Northern Illinois University what was then called the Clinical Laboratory Science Program. And so super interested in it, absolutely loved it. I thought that's what I wanted to do was to work in like a clinical laboratory science uh, field or an MLS field now. And I graduated in 2009, right when the recession was happening and nobody could find any jobs. So I'm originally from the Western suburbs of, of Chicago and Aurora, couldn't find a job, couldn't find a job. So then I'm like, all right, I'm gonna expand my search to Chicago. Don't really know much about, about Chicago, but a job is a job. So I expand my search and then a job opens up for a, a technician in the surgical pathology lab at the University of Chicago. And during training, we do like a clinical correlations class and a surgical pathologist kind of, 
brought in some specimens. It was like, this is what it looks like when you have these clinical findings, when you have like your heme and your micro, like this is what it'll actually uh, appear like on an organ. So I had a basic understanding of surgical pathology, not a lot. So I was like, a job is a job. I'll apply. I must have done something right because they, they offered me the job. And so I started working and originally wanted to work there for six months and then do an internal transfer because you, at the time, I'm not sure how it is now, but you could work for six months and then do a, a transfer to a different department. And at the time, I still thought I wanted to work in like micro and heme. I like things where you could be like more hands-on, right. not so much like chemistry where everything's like an, on an instrument. And so I was like, okay, you know what? I'll work here for six months, then I'll transfer down there. It's what I thought I wanted to do. It pays better. I was certified. I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. And as soon as I started working in surgical pathology and seeing the pathologist assistants and what it is that they do, like that just went right out the window. Like most people don't know what pathologist assistants are until you start working in pathology or you do a rotation or shadow. Um, It's becoming more prevalent now. People are starting to understand. But at the time, nobody really did. And I didn't. So I started seeing what they were doing. And again, I like to be more hands on, which is why I liked heme and micro. And so then seeing them and what it is that they were doing, I just like instantly fell in love and like took me a few years because I still wasn't sure like, is this what I want to do? I was debating whether to go to school for, uh, go to med school. So I started to study for the MCAT and then just as time went on, talking to residents, talking to attendings, seeing what the pathologist assistants were doing slowly but surely I was like, this is, this is what I want to do. It's amazing how our paths kind of go down roads which we hadn't anticipated. And then then you get exposed to certain things that you had never thought about. And then that becomes like your life passion, which which I think is amazing. And then it's also like, you know, it's it's such a matter of timing and luck. For example, right now, you know, I mean, if you had been, if you just finished your clinical lab science or medical lab science degree now, like there's so many jobs, like it's everywhere. You know, I mean, and and just a cross section at which you were, you know, changed the direction of your of your career. And, you know, and we're very grateful for it. I love the fact that you're a PA. I'm so glad. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, and no, it's amazing. Luck, I've realized, has been a big part of my career. Just like something happens that puts me down a road that I'm just not even expecting. And even like kind of like you were talking about now, if I were to graduate, there'd be plenty of jobs. Even now you have like the DCLS program. Back when I was in school, there was talks of like the DCLS program, but it wasn't like an actual thing at the time. So maybe I would have even gone down that road. Like it could have been completely different based on time and location. But I'm very glad and our listeners obviously are very glad that it didn't because <laughs> you are probably the most, one of the most well-known, uh, you know, pathologist assistants on social media. We, so many followers, so many amazing things. So let's pivot a little bit and start talking about social media right. uh, and how um, your involvement with social media has maybe changed the trajectory of your career or how you view your role in advocating for the pathologist assistant or how you view your role in relationship to, uh, you know, pathology laboratory medicine in general? Yeah. So when I first started, and I'm sure everybody's like this when they first start, you don't really know what it is that you're going to be doing. So you're just kind of trying to find your way. And so I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And then just talking to people such as yourself you know, the, the gross photo of the week kind of came up and that was, that was a lot of fun. And so I just constantly was always making sure, you know, every Wednesday, 10 a.m., I'm going to post one of these photos. And what started to happen is, like you're talking about, people recognize it. They're like, oh, good. You know, we have another person that's on here that's really sh- starting to show some, like, gross pathology. And what it's done is between that and 
I volunteer with the American Association of Pathologist Assistants and I work their booth that goes around to a lot of conferences. So between social media and then working in that booth, I've really gotten a chance to interact with a lot of people that I wouldn't have gotten a chance to interact with. And it's just really opened the doors for projects to work on that I might not ever have gotten a chance to work on before. I might've just been gross, 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 go home and there's nothing else. But now it's people are contacting me. People are, are like, hey, do you want to like help out with this project? Or I'm reaching out to people and saying, hey, do you want to help out with this project? It's really created this community that I just didn't know was even out there. Right. And it's great because we all get a chance to, to work together and like bring together the, the MLS and the, the residents and the PAs and the attendees and people who wouldn't usually get to work together if they're like halfway across the country. So it's really just more of like open the door for, for projects that I would never even and never even thought of. No, I completely agree. I mean, look at Bathpod, for example, right? I Bathpod, mean, exactly. Exactly. So like, I mean, for myself as well, it just opens up a window that, you know, that allows us to see things in a way that we might not have appreciated before. And also it allows us to kind of promote the stuff that we do. So you mentioned two things and I want to talk in detail a little bit about both of them. Let's start with Gross Photo of the Week. So yeah. some of our listeners may not have seen your posts or may not be following you yet. So tell us a little bit about uh, Gross Photo of the Week. Yeah, so gross photo of the week was up until recently a, a photo that I uploaded every Wednesday at 10 a.m. And again, the consistency was a big thing for me. I always had to make sure every Wednesday there was a new photo. And so originally, again, it started out, I didn't know what it was I wanted to do. So I posted a photo of a cystoprostatectomy that had a really large prostate um, and kind of just pointed out the fact like this was BPH that was making it really nodular. It was an actual cancer people responded to that really, really well. And were like, Oh, you should do this every week. And some people threw around some like ideas of names, like the surgical photo of the week, the gross surgical photo of the week. And then somebody, it might've been you, it might've been Nicole Cipriani who said gross photo of the week. And I was like, okay, that's perfect. And I just right then and there, it was a Wednesday, I think. So I'm like, all right, I'll just do it every Wednesday. So every Wednesday up until my son that was just born, like he's kind of taken a lot of time away from me. It was every Wednesday, 10 a.m. I would I would put a gross photo on there and then just give a very basic understanding of how it presents grossly. What are some of the basic IHC you'll find? What are the basic H&E that you'll find? If there's any molecular, I'll just kind of throw that up there. I'm not expecting people to look at it and being like, okay, I understand everything about this tumor now. Just more of like them to retain maybe a piece of information here and there so that when they see it later on or they're signing out the case, they're like, oh, you know, I kind of remember this once on Twitter. And then they'll be like, oh, that's right. That's, you know, something that he posted about, you know, two months ago or something like that. Yeah, you're saying basic, but dude, that, that's like an unbelievable <laughs> summary that you, you know, I mean, you really condense a ton of information, uh, you know, into these bullet points, like you, you cover the whole gamut of like everything that people are supposed to know. And then you have an amazing, amazing picture. And I think it was Nicole Spriani, uh, who I think suggested it on Twitter that I, you know, it's just amazing in these pictures and those posts, I can tell you, again, you're being humble are are award-winning, like award-worthy kind of, you know, images. So tell us, uh, you know, give us some tips and tricks. Uh, what do you do when you're, you know, you see a specimen, you're like, oh, this might be a nice G-Pow, like kind of image. And so, you know, give, give us the process. Like, you know, how do you make your pictures so beautiful? So, I mean, first and foremost, you just have to make sure your background is clean. 
a lot of times the residents are, are in a rush. They just want to get the photo and so they can move on. There might be blood, there might be some water, there might be, even just on the rulers, there might be some stains. But the biggest thing, obviously, is just making sure it has a clean background. It takes extra time. Uh, you know, something that might take 30 seconds now is going to take three minutes to take a photo of. But you have to take that time to make sure that you have a clean background. Because you can always go into, like, Photoshop and, and edit it. But it's much easier if right off the bat you have a nice, clean, a clean photo. Right. So clean, uh, clean background. Clean background, uh, a clean ruler that's centered. Um, Got to make sure your lighting's correct. And that's a hard part, even for us, because we have really bad amp- like overhead fluorescent lights that brings a lot of like shadows down. So shadows is a, a big difficulty for us. Um, so we also have like these little tungsten side lights as well that try and help out. So there's a lot of different things that you have to play around with. Your background, like currently right now, we have a white background. Any of the blue backgrounds that you see are our old photo setup, which I absolutely loved. Our old photo setup was amazing. Yeah, I love that these, setup. Yeah, it had these great. Yeah, you yeah you got to use it at the old at the old grocery room. It had this like light box underneath it that would light up beneath it, and then you had the lights overhead. It was amazing. Um, and so, our current background is a white background, but it should usually be like a blue or black. Black looks works really really well because it uh, gets rid of a lot of the shadows, the really bad shadows that you might see. Um, most of my gross photos are actually really, really old photos that I'm going through and, and cataloging. We have an online database of all our gross photos that we've taken from 2006 on. So I've just kind of been going through and like looking up all the cases and saying, okay, here's this case. This was the diagnosis in case an attending ever was like, Hey, do you have any gross photos of, you know, uh, RCC clear cell type of the kidney? I can be like, here are some options for you. Wow. So going, man. Yeah, the so encyclopedia going, of images. I love it. Yeah. So, and then it's been helpful for me because then I see some and I'm like, oh, this would be a great gross photo of the week. Um, and then if there is a photo that I take using the white background, I have like a very strict like rule of at least one month from the time that the case is signed out before I post it. Right. And for really, really rare tumors, I don't post it till a year afterwards, which is extreme by all means. Like you usually don't have to wait a year, but I don't want to worry about like HIPAA or anything like that. So I always wait a a long time, but yeah, so just making sure uh, clean background ruler, making sure if at all possible, your hands and instruments aren't in there. Sometimes it's, you kind of have to, to try and open up specimens that are like wanting to close on you and you want to show them mucosa. But if at all possible, I got to make sure your hands and everything around there uh, are out of there and your instruments are out of there. And then just playing around with lighting. Lighting is the biggest like killer, I think, creating really bad shadows. I agree. Shadows and like sometimes reflections, you know, like you get like these yeah. really bright areas on like the curvatures or especially when things are moist, like it just becomes like very bright. I know myself that, you know, from some old images that we've used sometimes in medical student education uh, that, you know, we're trying to help medical students identify different landmarks of a gross organ that's cut open. And, you know, if there is like, for example, a very bright kind of reflection on a fold, they'll start focusing on that and they'll be like, oh, what is this? And, and you know, it's like, it's almost it's funny later on when you're like oh that's just the reflection of the camera you know of the light yeah, yeah. So, and then they're like oh you know it's kind of a, a letdown because they were pay- paying so much attention to it yeah yeah um, yeah. yeah no but that's, G- I mean that's also a good point too and a good trick is to make sure that whatever it is that you want to be the focus of your image a make sure it's in focus and b make sure that it's centered because if you have a large specimen like a large colon or a large kidney and you're taking a picture of the whole entire thing people might start to focus on things that aren't really like important. So you always want to make sure that you have it centered and then 
one of the things that Nicole's really like instilled in us is zoom in as far as you can while still keeping the photo, the specimen entirely within the frame. Don't, you know, have this zoomed out photo where you have all this big, huge blue around there. Cause then it's like, what, what am I looking at? Okay. I, I can't, I can't see what it is you're trying to show me. So try and zoom in as far as you can while keeping whatever it is that you want in focus and in frame. I completely agree. I think that, uh, you know, so Nicole and I obviously trained, you know, together a few years apart. And that's also one of the things we we were always told about histologic images and PowerPoint slides. Like, you know, some people put in histologic images and they're like right just in the center and the rest of the slide is like completely empty. And I yeah. remember, I don't know if it was Dr. Krause or someone else saying, you know, we're pathologists. We want to see the image. Why is the rest of the slide empty? Just make it bigger, you know, like just yeah. make it really big so that there isn't like extra uh, on the side. And I think that that role is amazing for gross photography too. That's really, really helpful. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have to obviously bring up with this uh, timing that we have right now with the pandemic and stuff. I think that I want to talk to you about two things. One is safety for yourselves, obviously in the gross room when it comes to infections and different, uh, you know, contagious kind of things that could potentially be in specimens. It could be, you know, HIV to whatever. And then ultimately, I do want to direct our conversation a little bit to COVID-19 and, you know, your process with autopsies. So let's start with just infectious kind of etiologies that are involving different organs let's say you don't know about it let's say it's a lung wedge and you're what you know i mean who knows that nodule whether that's tuberculosis or you know cancer so tell me about how you guys in the gross room approach safety when it comes to infection yeah so obviously first things most important you always have your standard precautions you should always treat everything as if they're infectious so you have your things that you always wear with your fluid resistant coats you have your gloves i'm a big fan of double gloving and then some kind of eye protection. If it's something that you're really worried about is gonna be a splash hazard, then make sure you have a, a full face shield as well. We've been using that a lot because of current situations. Um, lung, man, lung is one of those specimens that can really bite you in the butt if you're not really paying attention. And it's one right. of those things, again, that comes back to training residents of, if you have a lung specimen and it's sent for frozen and they don't have a biopsy diagnosis, Make sure, make sure, make sure we have our safety cabinet, our biological safety cabinet, the hood. Make sure you open it under there. Don't go bring it over to the triage station. The chance of it being, you know, necrotizing granulomas and possible tuberculosis is low, yes, but it's always still a possibility. So, it's, again, it's a training process of letting them know, like, if you have a case that hasn't been biopsied and is a lung specimen, make sure you open it under the hood. So it's part of it's just training for the residents, for new PAs, for techs. Um, and then just making sure that if it is something that you're going to be working on that's infectious, try and limit your exposure to everybody else. If you have to cut a, cut a frozen, make sure it's on a cryostat that's um, not going to be used with the cryo spray to try and freeze things and aerosolize it. If you have an attending that feels comfortable with doing touch preps, do touch preps instead. Try and do everything it is that you can to try and limit the chance of, you know, uh, somebody being exposed to an infectious uh, material. But even sometimes, like, you are going to be exposed to things that you just don't expect. I remember an example, and I'm, I'm sure Charlie's going to be okay with me mentioning this case. It was a bone specimen, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was some kind of infectious etiology that nobody told us about. I, I'm, I believe it didn't mention it anything anywhere in uh, Epic or anywhere in the notes. It was tuberculosis. 
Was it tuberculosis? I yes, wanted to say it was tuberculosis. Yes, it I was. I have never seen somebody so mad in my life. Yes. Yes. And so he, and so sometimes you can't like prepare for those ones. So he cut this specimen on a bone saw and you get the bone dust and all this other stuff. And I, I know he ended up being negative, which is great. He has nothing to worry about, but I believe he did. But again, it's one of those cases, like sometimes no matter what it is that you do, no matter how hard you try, you're going to come across those cases where it's going to be an infectious case and it's going to catch you off guard. So you just have to try and do everything you can to limit it. So I'm hoping, I don't remember back then, but I'm hoping that he had on a face shield while using the bone saw because that would have at least limited his exposure. I don't know, but you just treat everything like, like it's infectious. I mean, that goes back to like the CLS days, like everything's infectious. Can I tell you something about that specimen and that story? So I recently, so many years have gone by, okay? And I okay. found out, so I, I remember that he was wearing a face shield, okay? okay. And, um, you know, because so so for the listeners who don't know, the, mm. the, the, the resident, uh, Corey is mentioning, him and I were residents together in the same year. Uh, I, I, you know, and then there was another resident, a, a slightly junior resident at the time who was actually part, uh, you know, part of that grossing. Oh, um, really? Yes, yes, yes. I'm not going to take her or his name. Okay. Um, but I recently, so it's so funny you bring up that one incident. I recently met this person, like, you know, they were in Chicago and, you know, we just met up, you know, just to catch up over dinner. And they brought up this specimen. And <laughs> so funny. And I mean, it's horrible. This is a horrible story. Like, I'm laughing yeah. right now. But basically, they were helping Charlie kind of, you know, do this. Or they were part of the grossing specimen, maybe either the triage or whatever, right? But they were, you know, even though they took complete precautions, after that, their PPD test, which is the skin test for tuberculosis, became positive. Oh, really? Yes, it did. And although uh, prove, I think that, you know, there was something about the quantiferon testing, but this this co-resident of mine, you know, they had to take, you know, medicines for six months uh, for tuberculosis. And it's so funny that, you know, you know, that you remember that specimen, but, you know, it's a, such a good example for everybody to hear that yeah. you know, sometimes, despite all sorts of like protection, like, you know, we obviously, uh, you know, in the gross room that you're talking about, you know, we took all our safety precautions. We knew exactly, you know, that you have to treat everything as infectious. And I know that these two residents did, but by but by some reason, uh, you know, one of them did test, you know, kind of positive for PPD. And okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, it, neither did I until like a year ago. Like when. Oh, so you that. just found out about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So I just found out about it. I mean, maybe even just a few months ago and they were mentioning that specimen and I obviously remembered it from the time. And my recollection, just like yours, was that there was no like negative effect of it because everybody was fine. But this poor resident, I mean, he or she is totally fine now. Uh, but that was definitely something. I can tell you, I remember that I, there was a specimen that I cut myself on, uh, you know, and I was double gloved and I, you know, I've only cut myself, I think, twice during this whole time frame. And and both times has been when I'm about to finish. Like So, like, I think my guard goes down, like, I'm finishing grossing. And both times it's been with the back end of the blade. Like, you know, the longer blades. It's never yeah, been, yeah. like, that I cut myself, like, directly. It's more that when I bring something back, I, like, slice, like, you know, a little bit of my finger. Gotcha. And I think, and I remember that I believe that that one patient might have even been HIV positive. And so, you have to be, you know, obviously, those precautions are really, really important. Yeah, um, I mean, it, and it really underscores the fact that if we aren't told that there is even a clinical yes. suspicion, 
you know, we're putting ourselves at great amounts of risk. And I think that it, it truly segues naturally into COVID-19, where many of our clinician, you know, patient-facing colleagues themselves may not know, uh, you know, about the COVID-19, you know, the patient being positive. I mean, right now, we're obviously testing everyone in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Here. But there was a time in between where tests weren't available to everybody and procedures hadn't stopped or, you know, or the emergent procedures were still happening. So tell me a little bit about autopsy. Let's start with your involvement in autopsy as a pathologist assistant, uh, you know, uh, how you feel about that, like, you know, what you glean from it, uh, and then we'll segue into COVID-19. Yeah, so as a, as a general rule, every pathologist assistant is trained to eviscerate and dissect organs for autopsies. We're obviously not able to sign out cases, but we can still eviscerate and we still can train. So every PA does training and generally in ME's office. So I did my training at the LA medical examiners. So every PA can do it, whether they actually do it in their current job or not is up for debate. Um, so like, I really don't do too many autopsies at the University of Chicago. One of my colleagues, Alexis Snyder, has really taken the initiative and really been like our, our guru for autopsies there. But as a general rule, every pathologist assistant is trained in doing autopsies and doing eviscerations and, and dissecting and prosecting the organs. And it's kind of like riding a bike. Could I do an autopsy right now? Yes. Would the first one be pretty? No. It would. I would get everything out and I would be able to find whatever it is that I need to try and find. But would it turn out well and would it be done efficiently? No, it definitely would be, but it'd be some one of those things that I could pick up and, and start doing again. The reason I say that is because of like COVID autopsies. We've had attendings that have been coming down there and helping out with autopsies as well. And they basically have said the same thing. It's like riding a bike, you know, they haven't done it for a long time. But then once you start doing it again, you're like, oh yeah, you know, I remember how to do this. Of course, yeah. So, so then... Yeah. So tell me a little bit, like, I mean, I know that you guys, even through the thick of it, were still proceeding to do autopsies at the University of Chicago, which, you know, it's, it's you know, commendable. And so tell me about, like, it, is there like a special kind of environment, kind of um, uh, ventilation that you guys are, you know, that's, that's the reason you were allowed to do it? Or did you just take extra precautions? Like, how did it work? Yeah, so... Timing-wise, probably going to work any better that we just opened a new autopsy lab, a new autopsy suite, just in March or something like that, April, mm -hmm. I don't remember, but just around the same time that all of this started happening. And so we have this new suite. It has this beautiful, like, autopsy area. Uh, it's negative pressure rooms. And then from when Ebola came around, we had been, we have these Ebola papra hoods that are really efficient. And so... Once all this started happening, we kind of put together a plan of how we were going to start um, doing autopsies for Ebola or for uh, uh, COVID patients. And so, again, Alexis kind of took the initiative and, and really like, like sat down as like, okay, this is the procedure we're going to follow. She went through with the safety office and was like, okay, when you're in there, you know, make sure you have on X, Y, and Z. This amount of, you have to have these layers of gloves. They have to be donned and doffed in a certain order. They need to be donned and doffed in certain areas and then cleaned. Then you can move to another area, take them off and clean. So we've been really busy, or I should say she has been really, really busy with autopsies. Um, we have a lot of um, COVID positive ones. Um, clinicians are wanting answers. We obviously are doing a lot still for research. So helping researchers out with their specimens for COVID autopsies. Um, but it's kind of been a learning curve when all this first started, there wasn't really a lot of info. Well, there was a lot of information. It's just 
what information do you kind of go with? That's exactly right. Yeah, that was, it was all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So we're like trying to like pick pieces here from like here and there and from like the CDC is like telling us this and then this other organization is telling us that like what it is, like what did we follow? And so in the beginning, it was kind of mayhem because you didn't really know what to do. But then over time, they kind of like narrowed it down. And now they have this great process. They are able to get in and out. Um, do their autopsies. We have it set up with EVS that they come in and do a deep clean and make sure everything's good to go for the next uh, autopsy, whether it's COVID or not COVID. Um, they fix everything in uh, formalin for, I believe, 72 hours, which I think is like the CDC guideline. Um, but yeah, so it's it was definitely uh, uh, some hit or misses here and there in the beginning and having to figure out some things on the fly. But sh- Alexis, I got to give her a shout out because she has really like taken the initiative and like figured all this out and like really been the one that stepped in and been like, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. Working with Jeff Mueller, working with Peter Pytel, um, Philip, he's one of our residents as well. Um, They really have taken the initiative and like done a fantastic job down there. No, I love it. I think it's so commendable, uh, especially from other institutions as well that, you know, I mean, not all, not everybody has the ability to have like a negative pressure room. And in general, many of the institutions had to just kind of shut down and not do autopsies for a little yeah. while. But you, as you know, like there have been several papers now, you know, talking about the COVID-19 autopsy and, and as things are, you know, starting up again, like, you know, naturally that we'll get more and more data. But I think that it's such an important, you know, piece of the whole puzzle of COVID-19 about, you know, the cause of death, for example, um, you know, and, and in general, we think about autopsies as being the final kind of testament to what actually happened to a patient. Um, and, you know, where did we need this the most? Other, like beyond, you know, COVID-19, where there's so, there were so many unknowns. And so I yeah, think that it's, yeah. Families, families still needed their answers too, you know, just right. because it's, you know, COVID-19. I understand if labs can't do them because they don't have the negative pressure, don't have the proper equipment. Safety, 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 100% understand. But if you have the ability to do it, these families still need their answers. Like their family member has passed and they want to know, you know, why. So it's still really important to do if you're, if you're able to, to do the autopsies. Absolutely. I have to say that, you know, you had brought up something which I did not know that you did your um, autopsy experience in the LA County Examiner. Yeah. The LA that Medical sounds like an unbelievable place to have that experience. Woo! Let me tell you, man, you see some things out there that are just, you will never see ever again in your entire life. Like I'm sure I know there's people that do them in the, in the Chicago Emmys office too. I know they stopped for a while. They might've picked back up. I don't remember, but yeah, man, Oh, you see a lot of craziness out there, which is great for me because like you would literally come in and there you'd have to do like two or three autopsies in a day. It wasn't, you come in and you do one autopsy. It's like, you knock one out, then you go and do another one. You knock one out, then you go and do another one. So you got a full, like full spectrum of things out there so humbling to you know see things that are in the medical examiner's office i mean naturally autopsy i think in itself is a very humbling process right it gives you you know i mean i think that no trainee or you know person who's involved with it can leave that room without a gratitude for life or gratitude for health you know it's a hundred percent especially when you see like younger life if you see like i remember i didn't but i remember next to me was a somebody doing an autopsy on a young teenager like i don't know what the cause of death was but like it's such a young life to lose. Like it really gives you an appreciation for your own life. Yeah. So it gives you like this whole sense of, 
of gratitude for life, obviously, and you know, and this whole uncertainty that you know surrounds life and how it can end. You know, in, in at the medical examiner's office here in Chicago, I remember uh, there was a gang-related shooting, and we had the we had one of the victims, you know, on one of my first days, and and part of our job was to look for how many in and out kind of exit holes and like entry you know holes there were for the bullets, and this wasn't a very old individual, and. Anyway, I mean, even if it was an old individual, it would have obviously been a very sad situation. But, you know, they, they jar, like they stay in your memory, obviously. And, yeah. um, you know, and I salute all the people who obviously are performing autopsies, giving that type of closure to families, uh, you know, and really it's just amazing. And I hope that everyone stays safe in this whole COVID-19 kind of business. Yeah. And I mean, you, it brings up a good point, too, of the importance of autopsies, like, the number of autopsies have been decreasing over the years for various reasons, but they really do provide a lot of insight for the families, for the clinicians, so that they can learn from them. It really is an important part of, of medicine. So to those people that are doing autopsies, whether it's the technicians, the PAs, the residents, the attendings, like your job is incredibly important. Like people can look at surgical pathology and you're trying to help out a patient that's still living, but they're still living you know, family members for that uh, decedent. So it's Absolutely. incredibly important. All right. So you had mentioned the other thing that I wanted to come around to was you had mentioned your role with the AAPA. So, you know, naturally all of our pathology and pathology and laboratory medicine related organizations, they all are very collaborative, collaborative as far as I can see. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your role in the AAPA and then also kind of what that uh, body organization does. Yeah, so the American Association of Pathologist Assistants is the professional organization that really kind of helps oversee a lot of the, the pathologist assistants that are out there. They're kind of the voice for the pathologist assistants. They, you know, provide their, their CEs, they have a publication. Um, and so I originally was working with the Marketing and Communications Committee for a while, just kind of volunteering with them. That's how I got involved with um, going around to different conferences, working with their booth. And about a year or two ago, we put out a survey and something that our members really, really wanted was an, an advocacy committee, something to really speak for them and for what it is, excuse me, what it is that they want and what it is that they want to be heard about. And we started talking about it. They weren't really sure where they wanted to go, but I knew that's something I was really passionate about, something I really, really wanted to do. And so at one of our marketing communications meeting, I just kind of was like, you know, if this is something we're moving forward with, I want to take the lead on that. And so we've really taken the initiative to try and put a lot of a lot of statements out there about things. Um, one statement recently was obviously on the Black Lives Matter. We're an apolitical organization, but this is obviously more than politics. This is Absolutely. about human rights and respect. Absolutely. And then we've been working a lot with like the ASCP um, to work with them on, on different aspects and things. Um, providing guidelines on how we think it is that grossing tech should be used, how it is that pathologist assistance should be used within like the VA system. Um, there's a lot of things that we are, are trying to move forward with, but it, it really gives me a lot of like opportunity to, to try and, and speak for our members. And the one thing I love about the AAPA members is they're very vocal. They'll let you know exactly what it is that they're thinking. And I, and I love that because I don't want me to think that I know what they're saying like i don't want them to think like i'm going to speak for you so i obviously know what you're talking about so i like that they are very vocal and are like this is what i'm passionate about this is what i want to talk about this is what concerns me 
So it's a great opportunity. You hear a lot of input, but it's a great opportunity to try and give back to the, the PA community and just to the, the pathology community in general. That's such a, you're such a great representative. I think that, you know, that's what every institution and organization needs, obviously, to be able to convey the sentiment of the organization, but then also to, you know, have advocacy for it. So I think that's so wonderful that you're, you know, obviously willing to listen to all of the members and then, you know, con- you know, can make the message concise and then packet it out and and who better to market it than one of probably the most uh, famous uh, people on social media <laughs> well, i won't say i won't say that but i will say like that has been one of the benefits is social media social media has really gotten us a chance the pathologist assistants to get out there and and really show what it is that we can do you know everybody knows that we can we can gross but it's a, a way of showing you know that we're educated, we're smart, we know what it is that we're talking about. So you can get out there on social media, you can present at conferences, you can get involved in different committees. So social media has really just given us an opportunity to like get our voice out there. Um, because there's still really not too many pathologist assistants on social media. Like Twitter, for example, there's a lot of pathologists on there. And so I've learned so much from them. Slowly, like little by little, there are pathologist assistants that are starting to get on there. But like that's something I really want us to push for in Twitter and Instagram and all the different forms of social media. Like have us get out there and show, you know, what it is that, that we can do. Because there's a lot that we can provide to laboratory, you know, medicine. Same with Twitter and learning from the attendings or learning from like med techs. Like as somebody who used to be a med tech, like there's a lot I've forgotten over 11 years that I'll read and be like, oh my God, I like flashback. I remember that. Right. So it's been awesome. Awesome. Yeah, and there's definitely a, a bunch of like hematology uh, kind of related tweets as well and microbiology, uh, both things that you said that you were interested in. You know, I, as you know, I run a, a master's degree program in medical lab science and we, we can have you over and teach you a little bit if you want to refresh it. It's no problem at all. That would be actually it'd be really, really because it's, it's amazing how much like that plays into surgical pathology. Like we're obviously AP and that's obviously CP, but it crosses over all the time when you're like reading reports and you're, you're reading lab findings. If you don't know like what some of these things are, it's, it's just going to go like right over your head. And I, for, again, I've forgotten a lot of it. So like a refresher course would be super helpful. I think that, you know, that's the beauty of, you know, the the interconnectivity of, you know, if you go from the whole spectrum of pathology laboratory medicine, from the medical laboratory science aspect and the, you know, the clinical laboratory aspect to obviously the pathologists and then also the pathologist assistant. We like, it's like this perfect trifecta of, you know, healthcare kind of involvement, which, you know, touches different things uh, about human kind of disease and diagnosis. And I think that our social media presence uh, has been, you know, what you've described for pathologists assistant like a few years ago that was the same exact problem with pathology and obviously with medical laboratory science as well the fact that because we aren't patient facing uh it becomes very difficult to understand what our role is right but it's Mm -hmm. it's a very very important role Uh, and i think that you know many many things uh, could go wrong if we do not perform our roles correctly and patients obviously don't know that you know i mean we always you know talk about this that if somebody goes to a hospital and is thinking about what their surgeon will be like what their nursing care will be like that's obviously extremely important, but it's also important to note that if you're having surgery, that the pathologist assistant is going to be top-notch and the pathologist is going to be top-notch so that they can get the right diagnosis, or for that matter, the medical laboratory scientist that's looking at their blood. So I think yeah. that all of us come together, and I think that the social media space 
has been really great for us, not only Agreed. to promote each other, but to promote our own professions. Agreed. Like I really see that this is going to be the way, at least for pathology. I don't, I'm sure other forms of medicine are also moving towards social media, but I think for us, especially like you were talking about, since we're not the ones that are most of the times face to face with a, with a patient, I think this is going to be really the way that we could move forward and, and get ourselves out there. And like a lot of people say, get out from behind the bench and really show what it is that we know and provide some information for the patients. Like I think it'd be incredibly helpful for the patients to be able to see some of our stuff that we talk about that's like really in depth that might not be helpful, but the information is still there that they can try and find it and like piece together little bits and pieces. They can go, you know, Google, you know, I have, uh, you know, renal cell carcinoma, and then they can come to Twitter and they can see, okay, this is what it looks like under the microscope. This is what the uh, imaging looks like. This is what the growth specimen looks like. So I really see this being, you know, the way forward, whether it's Twitter, whether it's like some other for- form of social media that comes on, comes along, I think this is really going to be the way that we move forward as a, as a, as a, a group. Absolutely. I mean, and you, you keep mentioning, you keep going there, but like you don't say it, but like you are like some sort of whiz on, on TikTok now. I just saw that you have tens of thousands of followers. I love that. So let's, talk, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about TikTok. Like, you know, what have you been using that platform for? Yeah. So I, I always think back to like history when Twitter first came out and this kind of actually goes back to when I first met you or not met, first met you, but when I first met you again at the ASCP conference in 2018, I was working the booth and me and you were talking and then you started talking about Twitter and the pathology, you know, presence on Twitter. And in my mind, originally I was like, Twitter, like, this is the place where people go and people still do this, but people just go and say the most like repugnant, horrible things, you know, like, oh, there's this really great community on there. And I was like, mm, I don't know if that's actually true. Sure enough, there was, I started up and it's been great ever since. But I thought back to like when Twitter first started, nobody was really using it for the medical field. So now I look at TikTok and TikTok is one of these up and coming things. It's the second most popular uh, app downloaded behind, I think, WhatsApp. So people are using it. And so I just kind of wanted to like dip my toes in the water to see what would happen. Because if it does take off and it's something that ends up being around, I want to be able to kind of have a, a foothold on what it is that's going on. So I'm kind of taking what I do in Twitter, but just making it very general and very easy for the public to understand. Whereas in Twitter, I'll go real in depth with the gross findings and IHC and, and H&E. But with this, I'm, I'm kind of just giving a more overview of this is the pathology lab. This is what we, what we do. I just gave like a tour of the pathology lab um, right now I'm doing a thing on Crohn's versus UC. So like, this is what a normal colon looks like. If you have Crohn's disease, this is what a Crohn's looks like. This is what I look for in a Crohn's disease specimen. Um, I've had to take a step back from it because our cap inspection comes up in less than a month. So that's basically been taking up all my time, but I'll jump back into that starting up with like the UC cases again. But again, I think it's a great outlet for us to try and let the community, let the general public know what it is that we do and kind of give them some more information about their own, you know, diseases and, and, and tumors that they might be facing. And it's been great because people comment are like, can you do a video on this? Can you do a video on that? So I already have a whole list on my computer at work of like, these are videos I need to do. And they don't take much time because I'm not going crazy in depth over, you know, in, you know, H and E findings and IHC findings. It's just more of, this is what your tumor looks like. 
here's how it can present. Here's why if you're having pain, it might be because of like the stricture and Crohn's disease. So it's, it's been interesting. That's, that's for sure, because there's not really many pathology people on TikTok. So just kind of playing around with it and seeing where it goes. No, I think it's great. That's, uh, you know, I mean, you inspired me to join and like, you know, do some stuff on it too. Uh, I actually have done literally nothing uh, so far, but I agree with you that I think that uh, the d- different platforms, you know, um, play like, you know, you can leverage in different ways. Uh, and I and I love the approach that you're taking, you know, that you have a, you know, you have a similar thing, but a slightly different thing uh, for the types of, uh, you know, uh, people who are using those apps. So I think that's really, really great. Really yeah. speaks to your amazingness on you using uh, social media. I love it. Yeah. And I think too, if in the future it ends up not being a thing and you know, TikTok falls apart, so be it. Yeah. yeah no big deal. But I want, again, I want us to be in the pathology field, like ahead of the curve when it comes to like new forms of social media, because again, when Twitter first came out and people first started getting on Twitter in the medical field, people are like, this is unprofessional. You shouldn't be doing it. And now it's the completely complete opposite. It's it's a very accepted form of communication for people in medicine. People think that about TikTok as well, and it's probably going to be a long fight. And if it sticks around, it'll take a while. But if it ends up being something that's around, I want us to to be there to try and to try and provide some information to the general public. That's what a leader is. Great job. That's so wonderful. I think that I, I think that in my mind, I've been able to make everything work other than Snapchat. I still couldn't do Snapchat for pathology. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, I, that's one thing I haven't. I haven't opened up my Snapchat and I couldn't even tell you how long. Um, I don't even know if I remember what my password is. Yeah, that's one thing I haven't really gone into. I wonder if there's anybody on Snapchat that's like big in the pathology field. I'm sure there probably is. Cause I mean, they're on YouTube, Instagram. Yeah. I'm sure there's somebody out there. I know that Jared is on it. He even tried to oh, keep yeah. on it and stuff. Uh, but, but, but I don't know if he still actively uses it or not. Okay. But I mean, it's a good example again of like, you got to do everything you can to try and get us out there. Like that old school method of, you know, just, and this is still fine and, and dandy, but like just getting published and getting and and, and, uh, uh, writing books and things like that. It's great for the pathology field, but it's not going to do a lot to get us out there to the to the community, to the general public. And so that's really where social media is going to step up and we really need to get everybody involved. Like everybody from MLS to attendings and everybody in between, we're all passionate about what it is that we do. We're all smart. We all know what it is that we're talking about, even though people suffer from imposter syndrome. We all love what it is that we do. So we should take that love and bring it to social media and people will see that people. And this has been talked about is it's that instant peer review. Like people are going to see it and instantly comment on it of like, this is perfect. I love it. Thank you. Or, Hey, this part's incorrect. It should be blah, blah, blah. Like that happens with me all the time. It's nothing wrong with that. So the more people we can get on there and the more information we can get out there, the better it is, man. I couldn't have asked for a better kind of ending towards the segment. I think what a passionate statement to kind of and a great note to end on. Uh, I really, it's been fantastic as always talking to you, Corey. Uh, I wish you all the best, and I look forward to seeing you back on Twitter. Oh, can't wait to uh, talk to you again, man. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to Path Pod wherever you download your podcasts.
PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.